blood runs, anger rises, death wakes, war calls. Out, out, damned spot. This is the War Games Orchard. Welcome to the show. My name is Nathan Stone, and I will be your host today. This episode is all about the Eldar Avatar of Cain, a wonderful unit that's been with us since the days of Rogue Trader. I've had 40k on the brain a lot recently, at least in the last week or so, and it's not something that we have covered on the podcast in a little while, so today we're going to enjoy some early history of the Avatar of Cain. We're going to be looking at his profile and his lore from Rogue Trader to 3rd edition, and then we're going to jump ahead and see where he ended up in modern day 40k. Before we do that, there is a little bit of news and hobby that I would like to share with you. First off on the hobby front, I have been painting some 2nd edition Eldar, which is not a small reason why you're getting this particular topic for this week, and... I have decided on a bile tan color scheme for my Eldar. I think it was always the one that my heart most wanted to do. I really got hooked on 40k towards the end of 2nd edition. I never owned 40k 2nd edition as a kid. By the time I had the money to get into it, it had flipped over to 3rd edition. But what I remember about those late 2nd edition Eldar forces that I would see in White Dwarf is they always had that beautiful studio bile tan army, the white and the green for the Guardians, those beautiful grav tanks with their incredible thorn and bramble patterns, just glorious. So I'm going to try and recreate something like that. I actually have a really good collection of Eldar that I haven't been doing anything with, so it's nice to finally get those started. In fantasy news, we wrapped up our Storm of Chaos campaign. Unfortunately, I couldn't make the wrap-up game, which was the Siege of Middenheim. And honestly, with my performance in-game, I'm not sure that my teammates missed me all that much. They were still able to use Archaeon in my Warriors of Chaos. And that was such a fun campaign. Unfortunately, a little shorter than we had all liked, but it was a matter of timing for this campaign. We still got in a few games each, plus a ton of hobby and just great memories. Had some really fun results. Some interesting things that happened, including Krom getting executed altogether a really fun time. My piece of news for you today is that I have a new video out on the YouTube channel. It's been a little while since I've been able to do one. I got one out in the last week or so, and that is all about the Chaos Centaurs of Warhammer Fantasy. If you want to check that one out, it's a Lost Units video where I just delve into the history of the Chaos Centaurs, what they were, and speculate on why they got removed. It's a neat little one. Uh, Look at that also doing a fresh Let's Play video pretty soon that'll actually be related to this episode. It's the 1999 video game Rights of War, and I'm hoping to film that one this week and get it edited and get it up. So hopefully by the time you are checking out that YouTube channel, and the YouTube channel is just 
War Games Orchard. It is exactly like the podcast. But please do check that out and those videos. Got a bunch of things on there now. Someday we hope to have battle reports and live streams again. There's just no telling, unfortunately, when that will be. We don't have access to the same space we were using pre-lockdown. And that is a big blow to us because that was a beautiful space for us to use. But we're going to try and do our best and get some streaming going again. In the meantime, I will be making videos for the YouTube channel whenever I can. That's going to do us for hobby and news today. Let's jump in to Rogue Trader and talk about the birth of the Eldar Avatar. The Eldar have been with us since the earliest days of Warhammer 40,000. The original Rogue Trader rulebook had rules for what were basically Eldar pirates. They were in a very early proto-state at the time. Most of their lore that we are all familiar with came afterwards in the pages of White Dwarf magazine. Now, luckily, Games Workshop of the era collected these wonderful articles, including things like Space Marine Terminators, Eldar, Gene Stealer Cults, and put them into a compilation called the Warhammer 40,000 Compilation and published in 1991. What's incredible about this compilation is just how well-developed the Eldar became. They almost went from zero to having an entire lore that anyone playing 9th edition would recognize. It was a really great and full backstory for the Eldar that got filled in almost immediately. It's really incredible. Going through it, there are some interesting changes to the lore that appear in this first edition that just don't appear in later editions, and we will explore a little bit of that regarding the Avatar of Cain coming up. But the first thing we should do is talk about Cain himself, the god, part of the Eldar pantheon. And Cain is really the focal point of the Eldar pantheon in Warhammer 40,000, but he isn't necessarily the most important god or even in the top three to the Eldar, except in matters of war. The Eldar histories, or myths, start with the pantheon of gods. These were Azurian, the king of the gods, as it were. He is very much a Zeus-like figure. He is the one that keeps all of the rest of the gods in line and solves their petty disputes and basically... He is the one that rules over the rulers. He is the, the king of kings, as it were. But the Eldar as a species don't get their start with Azurian. They get their start with Aisha and Kurnos. And our audience here is particularly Warhammer Fantasy focused, as about 95% of the episodes that I do are Warhammer Fantasy. So for those of you who are into fantasy and never explored 40k, you might be thinking, um, what is going on right now? The Eldar and the High Elves, Dark Elves, and Wood Elves all have the same pantheon. For all intents and purposes, Eldar are elves in Warhammer Fantasy. They are the same species, likely created in the same manner by the Old Ones, 
way, way back in the uh, early history of the Warhammer universes. And so they share the exact same pantheon. And you're going to recognize these same stories as well if you are an elf player who is read up on your lore. But the elves and the Eldar get their start from Kurnos and Aisha. They are two gods. Aisha was the god of the harvest, and Kurnos was the god of the hunt. Very agrarian gods, right? They're kind of early civilization gods, if you would want to think of them that way. And Kurnos and Aisha were really into each other. And what I mean by that is they had a lot of kids. A lot of kids. They gave birth to gods, as well as mortal races. The favorite amongst these were the Eldar. Aisha loved her mortal children. However, there had been a prophecy made by Lilith, who was another member of the Eldar pantheon, and she had dreamt that Cain, the god of war, would be torn to pieces by a mortal descendant of Kurnos, the god of the hunt. And Cain, very reasonably, thought that this was bad, and he did not want this to happen. So he, very reasonably, came to the conclusion that if he just killed all of the mortal children of Kurnos and Aisha, then this dream or prophecy of Lilith couldn't come to pass. So he went about doing that because he's the god of war and there's not a lot of beings that can stop him from doing things. And he pursued the Eldar through the heavenly realm, slaying as many of them as he could. At this time, there was no barrier between gods and mortals. So the Eldar of the era, of this very early, early era, would have been literally pursued by a god of war and hunted down mercilessly. He continued this genocide until Azurian got involved. Azurian really was a hands-off kind of ruler amongst the elven pantheon, and he wasn't going to do anything except he kept hearing Aisha weeping, and eventually he was just like, okay, Aisha, what's wrong? And she told him about what Cain was doing. So Azurian, in his way of fixing this, banished the remaining Eldar to the mortal lands and forbade all further contact between mortals and gods. So they would be safe from Cain. However, they would no longer have the guiding influence of Kurnus and Aisha. And the two were dismayed at being parted from their mortal offspring, and they wanted a way to get around Azurian's decree. So they asked their uncle, who was Val. Val is the elven god of the forge. He is a smith. And they wanted to see if he could help reunite them. Val took the tears that were shed by Aisha and turned them into spirit stones, the very first spirit stones. And by means of these stones, the Eldar could talk to Kurnos and Aisha. And though they were forever separated by this barrier that Azurian had placed between the lands of the mortals and the lands of the god, she could still guide them in their development. So Aisha taught the Eldar many things, including the secrets of Wraithbone, how to make psychically charged runes, and all kinds of various structures and crafts and 
engineering, basically the, the building blocks of what would become Eldar civilization. Unfortunately, she wasn't careful enough when she did this. And one day, Cain overheard Aisha as she was speaking through the stones to the Eldar. And in a move that I find somewhat comical, the war god ran off and tattled on her to Azurian, which is, I'm just thinking of this Cain just, just running, just running to find Daddy Azurian. And just so beside himself, you know, that he is he's going to get to do this. Azurian did not take kindly to this. He's got a real kind of Zeus energy to him. So he's not so much interested in things like justice as opposed to everyone listens to him. And if they don't listen to him, he's going to get really angry and he's going to give him a spanking. So Azurian was enraged that Aisha and Kurnos had flaunted his rules after he did them this huge favor of throwing their children into a different realm so Cain couldn't kill them all. And he decided that, okay, Cain, since you tattled on them, uh, you can have them. You can just, you can do whatever you would like with Kurnos and Aisha. Well, Cain, of course, is not a god that is predetermined towards mercy and letting bygones be bygones, so he had all manner of torments cooked up. However, Vol, the uncle to Kurnos and Aisha, he couldn't stand to see them harmed by Cain. So he actually struck a bargain with Cain. He came to Cain before Cain could take his rage out on Kurnos and Aisha, and he said, hey, if I forge for you a thousand enchanted weapons in a single year, will you let Kurnos and Aisha go free? And Cain thought about this, and it seemed like a pretty good deal to him. He loved weapons, a bit of a collector, that guy, and he agreed to it. So Vol worked throughout the entire year, but by the end of the year, he only had 999 weapons, because of course, the last one was unfinished, and Cain was coming to collect his due. So Vol takes a mundane sword, and he mixes it in, and... Cain, at first, is just so happy that he's got all of these new neat playthings to swing around, he doesn't even notice it. So Val, Kurnos, and Aisha made their hurried exit. However, Cain, because, again, very obsessive, eventually he discovered the mundane sword. And he roared with anger because, of course, 999 magical weapons... No, that's that's not enough. That's chump change. Certainly not good enough for the god of war. So he roared with anger that shook the heavens, called Vol a cheat, and cried out for vengeance. This began a war between the four of them. Cain and Vol fought each other. Vol reforged that unfinished sword to use against his enemy. But after a series of battles, Vol is finally caught by Cain, who cripples him and chained the smith god to his own anvil. Because, again, this is the god of war, not going to lose a lot of fights, Cain, generally. Vol's sword actually passed into the hands of a mortal, a mortal hero called Eldanesh, who finally confronts Cain. And it's not told to us how Eldanesh manages to do this, considering there is a barrier between the gods and the mortals, but perhaps the sword itself allows Eldanesh to travel between this barrier, Eldanesh confronts Cain, basically on behalf of Aisha, Kurnos, and Vol, and Cain rips him to pieces because, and I do hope 
I'm being clear on this, he is the god of war. Very good at this. At this point, Azurian is just like, oh no, this is getting out of hand. And apparently the murder of Eldenesh was the straw that broke the camel's back for Azurian. He was like, okay, Cain, this has gone far enough. So he cursed Cain, and he made his hands drip eternally with the blood of Eldenesh, so that everyone would remember what Cain had done. Azurian is hilarious. It's like Azurian is the principal of a very, very violent elementary school. And all of the gods are just having their little squabbles, and Azurian comes out every now and then and puts them in detention. This is basically the Eldar Pantheon. And so if you're ever wondering why the Avatar of Cain has a perpetually dripping blood hand, it is the blood of Eldenesh. It is part of his curse, and it has become a real symbol of Cain, both in Warhammer 40,000 and in Warhammer Fantasy. Now, the story of Cain, the god, picks back up during the fall of the Eldar. And if you're not familiar with the fall of the Eldar, it is a tragic tale. Pretty much every story that the Eldar tell or are involved in are tragic tales. The Eldar civilization rose to rule the galaxy. They were unchallenged in terms of technology, intelligence, psychic power, raw skill. Eldar are very good at pretty much whatever they put their minds to. However, Eldar are also prone to excess. When they get into something, they get really, really into it. And because of that, they need to turn everything up to 11. And they were so powerful, they were so dominant in the galaxy, that they started this narcissistic decline. And by that, I mean, they would chase every feeling every whim that they had, no matter how dark, no matter how depraved, because there was nothing to stop them. There was no checks on their power, and they birthed something horrible in warp space. That was the chaos god Slanesh. It was born through the Eldar psyche. It started off small and grew and grew with each depravity in the old Eldar empire, with each act of complete excess, that surrender to decadence. And one day, it woke up, and its birth scream tore the heart out of the Eldar Empire. Quite literally, the Eye of Terror was formed by the birth of Slanesh. It is centered around the old homeworlds of the Eldar Empire. Some far-seeing Eldar had become disenfranchised with their ever more out-of-control kin, and they had fled. Some of these Eldar were the Exodites, who were the those living on the Galactic Rim. Some of these were the Craftworlders, who built giant spaceships to go on a self-imposed exile from the rest of the Eldar Empire. And some were the Dark Eldar, who, whilst not particularly different from the Eldar of the day, took to the webway and made their home outside of real space. And these are the Eldar that we know and love to this day. They are the survivors of the fall of the Eldar Empire. But the fall of the Empire didn't just tear the heart out of 
the Eldar Empire, it also destroyed their gods. When Slaanesh was born, it was so powerful that it consumed the Eldar pantheon. The Eldar of the 41st millennium will tell you that their gods are dead. And this isn't hyperbole in this case. They were consumed by Slaanesh. Now, fragments remain because it's awful hard to kill a god completely. And whilst most of their pantheon are lost to them, slivers and shards of their gods remain. The most notable of these are the shards of Kala Mensha Cain. Now, shortly after Slaanesh was born, one of its first actions was to devour the Eldar gods. But of course, our war god Cain is not going down without a fight. And I want to read to you an excerpt from the Warhammer Compendium from 1991. This is the section on avatars, because I believe that this particular piece of lore does not exist in any other place. And it details the relationship between Kayla, Mensha, Cain, and Chaos, and how it came to be that the avatars found their way to the craft worlds. When Kayla Mensha Cain, the bloody-handed god of the Eldar, fought with Slanesh, the lord of pleasure, he was quickly overwhelmed in his energy captured by the newborn god. For the bloody-handed god was as much a part of Slanesh as of corn, being a product of that part of the Eldar nature which finds gratification in murder and pleasure in bloody violence. Corn, the blood god, the patron of war, murder, and battle, roared with rage to discover one of his own taken from him in this way. Then Corn and Slanesh clashed headlong, the blood god fighting to recover the portion of his power that had been robbed of him, Slanesh driven by his uncontrollable hunger to consume everything in his path. The bloody-handed god of the Eldar was tossed this way and that, at first grasped by Slanesh, then tugged back into the compass of Corn. Eventually, the rage of the blood god and the passion of the lord of pleasure were exhausted, and the boundaries between them were established. Like a leaf in the eye of a hurricane, Kayla Mensha Cain fell among the calm, down through the realm of chaos, and into the material universe. As he entered the material universe, he divided into many shards of energy, scattering his power so that neither Korn or Slanesh could ever find him again. Each shard entered the body of an Eldar, filling the body with his own mind, possessing it, so that it became a virtually indestructible, blood-lusting murderer, the material manifestation of the bloody-handed god. These are the avatars of Cain. What an interesting revelation that is. We always knew that in some way, shape, or form, Cain was related to Korn, and that relationship is quite downplayed in later eras. They're, they're very separate entities, this early lore casts that into doubt, where Korn feels that Cain is part of his power, a part of his power structure, and probably a little bit of himself. I found that really fascinating and wanted to share that with you. Each craft world has at its heart one of the shards of Cain, one of the avatars. This next section describes that in more detail, as well as the summoning of the Avatar. 
This section is called the Throne of the War God. At the core of every craft world is a sealed chamber. Inside this chamber, upon a throne of smoldering iron, sits an avatar of the bloody-handed god. The avatar is as still as a statue of ancient metal, pitted with age and encrusted with the patina of corrosion. His eyes reveal only empty darkness, as if his whole body were a hollow metal shell. The chamber is built of gleaming wraithbone, whose skeletal structure stretches throughout the entire craft world, its strands connecting every part of the craft world to the throne. When the Eldar prepare for war, the metal body of the Avatar begins to glow, as the heat of his fiery blood is kindled. His metal heart begins to quicken, and his iron flesh starts to pulse with life. Liquid iron boils through his veins, and his whole body crackles and hisses like a furnace. When he stirs upon his throne, Exarchs and Aspect warriors all over the craft world feel the vibrations reverberate through the gleaming threads of Wraithbone, which spread like naked ribs throughout its caverns and chambers. Recognizing the Avatar's battle call, the Exarchs and Aspect warriors hurry to the shrines of the War God to begin the rituals of preparation. As the Avatar's first stirrings are felt, the oldest Exarchs from each of the principal shrines on the craft world gather outside the chamber and begin the ritual of awakening. They wear their ritual masks and armor. They are accompanied by another exarch called the Young King. The Young King is selected every year by the ritual divination of the Craftworld's far seers, the psychers who guide the Craftworld's political decisions. The position is held only for one year, after which the exarch steps down and another Young King is elected. The awakening ceremony begins as a Young King is ritually disrobed and his body painted in blood with the runes of Kayla Mencha Kane, weaving shapes that evoke the annual orbit of the sun, its rise in the solar dawn and its inevitable autumn fall. With due ceremony, the Exarchs bring the ritual regalia of the Avatar from its place in the various shrines of the War God and present it to the young king. Across his shoulders is draped the long mantle fastened by its golden pin, in his right hand he carries the long dark weapon of the Avatar, the Doom that Wails. Into his hand is pressed the Cup of Creel, the bloody cup containing blood drawn from his own body. The six Exarchs, the young king, and a huge choir of Eldar seers position themselves outside the massive bronze doors of the throne room, watching as its ancient metal glows hotter and starts to glow with a ruddy light. Behind them, the seer choir sings the Hymn of Blood and the Exarchs take up its cry. From within the chamber comes the sound of splintering metal and crackling flame. Very slowly the bronze doors begin to open. The interior is filled with brightness, in the very center of which is the Iron Throne, and sat upon it the Avatar himself, a great dark shadow amongst the unbearable light. The young king steps inside as the hymn of blood reaches a crescendo of ritualized screams, seemingly random, but actually as carefully orchestrated and rehearsed as the rest of the ceremony. Slowly and deliberately, the brazen doors close. The music and the singing cease, and the noises within the chamber become dull and bass, like the sounds of distant thunder. The exarchs join hands, forming a continuous circuit, and begin their vigil. Groups of exarchs take it in turn to maintain a continuous humming chant. Sometimes they must wait for several days, but usually an hour or two elapses before the Avatar awakes. He awakes without any warning, 
Suddenly, there is a loud, inhuman scream, and the bronze doors are thrown aside by an explosion of energy and light. The Exarchs struggle against the hurricane of force, trying desperately to remain on their feet and maintain their closed circle. The Avatar walks from his throne, and at that moment, in shrines throughout the craft world, the Aspect warriors don their helmets in the culmination of a ritual that has paralleled that before the throne room. The Avatar's previously empty shell is now filled with a powerful energy. His eyes glow like coals, and as he moves, his whole surface crackles and spits like smoldering metal. Molten iron flows through his veins, and bubbles of fiery ichor burst and solidify upon his skin. Dark tendrils of smoke and flying cinder enwreath him. Mixed with the hot smell of brazier and coal is the unmistakable taint of blood. He wears the mantle fastened upon his shoulder with its dagger pin. His long and powerful arms are covered with blood up to his elbows. Thick red blood oozes from his hands and drips from his fingers, and leaving steam-red droplets behind him. In his right hand, he carries the doom that wails. The runes etched upon it appear to writhe and struggle inside the weapon, as if tortured by the heat of the Avatar's bloody grasp. Of the young king... There remains no trace, unless it is the sickly seeping blood that drips from the Avatar's gory arms. The Avatar's outer shell resembles a suit of war armor, and is encrusted with the individual spirit stones which pulsate with vermilion light. These contain the spirits of all the young kings that have ever entered the chamber. The personalities and memories these spirit stones contain fortify the Avatar and enable him to call upon these experiences of the young kings themselves. In a sense, therefore, Exarchs who become avatars never die. They are united with the avatar himself and continue to live in him forever. That is an excellent and very evocative description of the awakening ceremony for the Eldar avatar. I really like that the avatar incorporates the memories and personalities of the young kings that came before it reminds me very much of the episode that we did on Ariel and Orion. Then I compared Orion to the Avatar of Kurnos. And you can see the stark parallels, if you've listened to that episode, between the Avatar of Cain and Orion of the Wood Elves. It's interesting in this early lore to hear the Wailing Doom called as the Doom that Wails. It's, uh, <laughs> it's just... A minor thing, but it's a, it's a really fun little change. Now let's talk about using the Avatar in Rogue Trader. This is, like many early Warhammer profiles, an exercise in building a character rather than just taking a character from its unit entry. And what I mean by this is that whenever you would like to take an Avatar for 300 points you will be randomly determining its stats. And the rationale for this was that each avatar is a little bit different at the heart of every craft world. So, to start off, the avatar had a movement of 6, a weapon skill of d6 plus 4, a ballistic skill of d6 plus 4, a strength of d4 plus 4, a toughness of d4 plus 4, a wounds value of d4 plus 3, an initiative value of d4 plus 6, an attacks value of d4 plus 1, and then for leadership, intelligence, cool, and willpower, he was 10s across the board. Even rolling at minimum values, 
he was going to be a rather tough cookie, though he should be for 300 points. He is very expensive. It was really, really hard for me to resist building my own avatar for this episode and sharing it with you guys. Maybe I will save that for a Patreon episode down the road. I just didn't quite have time for it this week. Armor-wise, the avatar has a d6 saving throw of two or more on a d6, and always confers a save of at least four, five, or six, irrespective of any modifiers. So the worst save that he can have is a four, five, or six, which is quite nice. Weapon-wise, the avatar is armed with a ritual weapon, the Doom That Wails. This weapon can appear in many guises, as a sword, a spear, or an axe, for example. In hand-to-hand combat, the avatar fights using the Doom That Wails, and has a specified number of attacks at his own strength. The enemy's d6 saving throw rolls are reduced by minus 6, and will therefore always fail unless the target has a minimum save value, as does the avatar himself, for example. In this, of course, they are not taking into account Terminator armor of that early era, which would roll 2d6 for its saving throw, but even a Terminator is going to have a tough time shrugging off a hit from this weapon. The avatar is immune to all forms of psychology and causes fear in all living opponents. There is a section called Special Invulnerabilities. The avatar does not need to breathe, and so is unaffected by gas weapons of any kind. His supernatural metabolism is red hot, so melt weapons, plasma weapons, and flamers are less effective than normal against him, and that includes equivalent grenade types. Workout hits and damage is normal, but do not apply the armor save modifiers. All hits from Melta, Plasma, and Flamer weapons are therefore saved on a two or more. Gives him a real boost to toughness against some very, very common weapons in Warhammer 40k. Then we get Powers. Now this is really interesting. As a manifestation of the Bloody-Handed God, the Avatar has D4 Special Warrior Powers. The number of these is randomly generated, and each Warrior Power is generated from the Warrior Powers table at the end of the list. These warrior powers are unique to the Eldar race, and only the Avatar can have more than one. Well, what are these powers? Well, they're actually the Exarch abilities that we're familiar with in later eras. So things like War Shout, for example, the Avatar could have them. Makes individualizing your avatars when you're creating one of these really fun, because you're going to have different stats every time. And you could also have a different mix of powers, leading to some really interesting Eldar avatar builds, if not just a random assortment of of weirdness. This is, for my money, the most interesting avatar that we will look at today. And it has that real RPG feel to it with all of the random determination of stats It's wonderful. It's exactly what you think for the Rogue Trader era. Before we leave this compilation and move to second edition, I want to share a little vignette that is in this book that I find really, really lovely, and I've never seen it anywhere else. He found her in the arbor, gazing into the heart of a purple iris. She silently acknowledged his approach, continuing to study the delicate, dark petals of the flower. Elshar expected no more greeting. Since he had become trapped in the aspect of the warrior, his feelings for Irelith had lessened to the point that he could now barely remember them. Their paths had forked, but he still felt respect for her. 
she was a fine warrior, an honor to her aspect. All the Eldar sensed the growing tension which heralded the awakening of the Avatar and the summoning of the Aspect warriors. A time of darkness and blood. A time when they had to trust their darker sides to preserve them from evil. He supposed she resented it, or was saddened by it, while he, as an exarch, welcomed the coming conflict. He found peacetime monotonous. Only the thrill of battle made him feel truly alive. He was like a hunting hound being taken out to the chase. You've heard the news, he asked her. She shivered slightly at the rhetorical question, and turned to face him, her dark hair gliding over her shoulders. Yes, we go to fight again. The wraithbone hums with the message of war. I feel... him. He's beginning to wake. Soon I shall be assuming my aspect. And you? Do we need to say farewell, Elshar? Or will you even care to remember me? I really enjoy that. It's a wonderful little snippet of the Eldar psyche, the way they think, the way they operate, and the influence that the Avatar of Cain has over every Eldar in the craft world. They feel him in a primal, visceral level in their very being, in their souls. I think that might be one of my favorite three or four paragraphs of Warhammer 40k fluff that I've ever read. I just... It says so much in, in so little, and I really wanted to share that with you. Now, let's move on to second edition. What's incredible about the Eldar is that, much like the Skaven, but even more so, they emerged as kind of a fully formed thing early on in the lore of 40k. So they don't change that much. There's really not a lot of lore diversion between the Eldar of Rogue Trader, the Eldar of Second, Third, and so on and so forth. So for these, we're going to be looking more at the stats of the Avatar, because the Avatar changes a ton between editions, and the way that Games Workshop designed him and wanted him to be used, I think, changes a fair bit as well. Also speaks to the changing design philosophies that Games Workshop has had over the years. In second edition, the Eldar Avatar is a 0 to 1 character choice. He is still 300 points, but his stat line is now locked in. And oh boy, is it about as good as you could hope for. The Avatar can go blow to blow with a greater demon of corn and have a real good chance of being the one walking out of that conflict. He is movement 6, weapon skill 10, ballistic skill 10, strength 8, toughness 8, 7 wounds, initiative 10, 5 attacks, and leadership 10. He is armed with the Wailing Doom. We've got the name switch there. He has a strategy rating of 4, and his special rules are, if your army contains an avatar, then he is automatically its commander, and the avatar is permitted no war gear cards. This is undoubtedly a very impressive stat line for our avatar. He is an absolute beast in close combat. He will tear through just about anything in the game if he touches it. Now, for those who are not familiar with 2nd Edition... Second edition is very, very lethal. It is very much like modern day 40k in that way, 
where multi-damage weapons are common. So the Avatar stats, while impressive, are hardly invulnerable. He will not last long if left out on his open. Toughness of 8 is great, but there are a lot of weapons that can do 7 wounds in a single round of shooting, and you would have to play the Avatar a little bit carefully to avoid him getting gunned down before he reaches his targets. Now, 2nd edition does give us a little bit more information on the Wailing Doom. Because it is a piece of war gear, it has its own entry in the book here, and it's worth checking out. Each avatar of Kala Mencha Cain, the bloody-handed god of the Eldar, carries a mighty weapon known as the Wailing Doom. This massive blade shrieks as it tastes mortal flesh, wailing and crying as the avatar strides across the battlefield, cutting down his enemies. Upon the surface, ancient runes writhe as they struggle to escape from their bondage, as if tortured by the heat of the avatar's grasp. The Wailing Doom is no mortal weapon, but the manifestation of a dark and sinister god, a part of the avatar imbued with his power. If the avatar attacks a demon with the weapon, then the victim does not get its demonic saving roll. The Wailing Doom can also be used to shoot a powerful energy bolt up to 12 inches in the shooting phase. Roll the hit and work out damage, as you would with any shooting weapon. If the target is a demon, then it does not get its demonic saving roll, in the same way as for hand-to-hand -hand attacks. And for shooting, the Wailing Doom has a short range of 0-6, to six, a long range of 6-12, to 12. It is Strength 8, Damage D3, with a minus 4 saving modifier. It has an Armor Penetration rating of D6, plus D3, plus 8. And the special rules are Negates Demonic Saves. I'm a little bit surprised at the lack of Armor Penetration on this. 8 plus D6 plus 3 is really only going to penetrate the lightest of vehicles most of the time. It's not got a lot of stopping power against tanks, unfortunately, which you might assume that it would. The Avatar's Special Invulnerabilities section does make the jump from Rogue Trader to 2nd Edition, and it's improved. And by that, it means weapons that are heat-based are useless against the Avatar. This includes melta weapons, plasma weapons, flamers, and equivalent grenade and missile types. The Avatar cannot be harmed by these weapons in any way. That is really, really nice. You still have to watch out for things like Laz Cannons, but it can really save your bacon against someone who brought a lot of Melta or a lot of Plasma. The Avatar is also totally unaffected by gas weapons and poisons, as well as blinding attacks such as Photon Flash Flares. Try saying that ten times fast. Photon Flash Flares. The Avatar is immune to psychology and automatically passes any leadership-based test he is called to make. He can never be broken and never needs to take a break test. He does not count as a living model, but he is vulnerable to psychic attacks which do not require a leadership test. He has an iron body, which is that lovely 2-plus save that we saw in Rogue Trader. And it still has its cap that the saving throw cannot be worse than 4+, which is, again, really wonderful. Finally, he has the terror special rule. He causes terror as described in the psychology section of the Warhammer 40k rulebook. 
Second edition might be the real glory days of the Eldar Avatar. His special immunities allow him a good amount of protection against a lot of popular weapons. His movement of 6, doubling to 12 if you ran him, could get him up the table pretty quick. And your opponent is probably going to have to dedicate a fair amount of fire towards removing him. And in close combat, I mean you're just gonna win. Weapon skill 10 with 5 attacks at strength 8. He is going to win any combat he is in unless you charge him into an entire horde of gene stealers. And honestly, that's your own fault if you're going doing something like that. If you are an Eldar player and you want to play the glory days of the Eldar Avatar, give second a try. It's lots of fun. I will always stump for second edition. I think it is the most fun that 40k can be, even if it's not uh, balanced in really any way, shape, or form. Now, let's turn the pages forward a little bit and look at the Eldar Avatar of 3rd edition. The 3rd edition Eldar Codex is one of the pamphlet hammer codexes. It was one of the very small codexes released in the aftermath of the move from second to third. It was published in 1999, so just the year after third edition came out and changed the way 40k would be played for decades. The biggest thing to remember if you didn't play during the third to seventh edition era was that the crossover between 2nd edition, 40k, and 3rd edition was dramatic. Most profiles went down, the destructive ability of weapons went down, and the points values went down. Nowhere was this felt more heavily than in monsters and special characters, where things got absolutely turned on their heads. We find our Avatar of the Bloody-Handed God as the very first entry in the HQ, or Headquarters, section of 3rd edition. Of course, the entire way that you made armies changed in from 2nd to 3rd, from a percentage-based system to a slot-based system. In 2nd edition, you could have up to 50% of your points total be for characters. This is quite common during the Hero Hammer era, this happened for both 40k and fantasy, but once we got to 98, you started having slots for things, and you were limited to two HQ choices in a standard army. One of those could be the Avatar of the Bloody-Handed God, who is, again, a 0-1 to one choice. And, oh boy, we want to talk about a downgrade here. Here we go. It doesn't have a movement stat because movement stats went away from 3rd to 7th, but it is weapon skill 10, so that's great. Ballistic skill 0, which is unfortunate. Strength 6, toughness 6, 4 wounds, initiative 5, 3 attacks, leadership 10, with a 5 plus save. Now it does have some special rules, at least. It is fearless, which we expect. It is inspiring, which is an interesting new rule that would stick around from the 3rd to 7th edition era. Any Eldar unit with a model within 12 of the Avatar becomes fearless in close combat. That means when a unit is fighting an assault, it will automatically pass any morale checks it is required to make. Also, if the Avatar itself is in close combat, all Eldar units with a model within 12 add plus 1 to their score 
when working out who has won a round of close combat, which is a fun little rule to have. The Avatar is an independent character and follows the independent character's special rules. It is a monstrous creature and rolls 2d6 for its armor penetration and ignores opponent's armor saves in close combat. It is invulnerable, which means its 5 plus save cannot be changed in any way. It will always get that 5 up save. And it is a demon. To all intents and purposes, the avatar is a demon and will be affected by weapons or abilities that use special rules against demons. So Grey Knights would have a field day against this guy in 3rd edition. This is a pretty big downgrade. You go from being immune to a lot of weapons, having a 2-up armor save, to just having a 5-up invulnerable save. Ooh, it's not great. Here's, here's the upside. It's 80 points. Yeah, it went from 300 to 80 points. And it's still fairly tough with 4 wounds. Almost nothing in 3rd edition did more than 1 damage. So, you're still looking at a minimum of 4 Lazganas to put this thing down. Assuming they all hit and wound and assuming he doesn't make any of his armor saves. It's certainly a lot less impressive than the 2nd edition avatar profile. But at the same time, he's so much cheaper that you can still throw him in and have a ton of space left to build an army. He's a fun distraction, which, while that doesn't do his lore justice, it does at least have a role. The saddest part of this, I think, is that his wonderful wailing doom, or the doom that wails, depending on how you wanna how you wanna look at it, has no special rules whatsoever. It might as well not be there. It doesn't give him an extra attack, it doesn't do anything special, he can't shoot like he would in previous eras or later eras, for that matter. Now, one of the most interesting things that you could do with the Avatar in the 3rd edition era was using the supplement known as Craftworld Eldar. This was an even smaller pamphlet that came out about a year after the Eldar Codex and included rules for playing the big famous craft worlds, including Biltan, Yandin, Ulthwi, Alatox, Samhan, you know, those guys. And what it allowed you to do was, if you took Biltan, you could take the Court of the Young King. This is, I think, one of the coolest units that has ever existed in 40k, and the rules are in the lore. It is the avatar of Cain surrounded by aspect warrior exarchs, either in pretty much any combination of exarch, even with some duplicates, and you could have this incredible colorful unit just bounding up the table with all sorts of special rules <laughs> and war gear and just chopping people to bits. It was a very fragile Death Star, but it could do some interesting things and it always looked incredible on the tabletop. The Court of the Young King is one of those units that we've lost time, but I would love to see again. There is, I believe, a stratagem named after it to this day, but nothing to actually make that unit again. The other thing that happened was in the Eye of Terror campaign. There was a variant on the Court of the Young King for Ulthwi, and I believe it was called the Spear of Cain. And in this case, replace the Exarchs with 
Eldar Seers. And that unit would run around causing psychic shenanigans and having the Avatar cut people to ribbons. Two very flavorful, really cool looking units that unfortunately just never got translated into later eras. Unfortunately for the Eldar, they would never get an updated 3.5 codex. And now I tend to believe that the Eldar were pretty decent in 3rd edition. I think they had a lot of fun movement tricks. I think they had some great firepower. Everything was toned down in 3rd. I really don't think Eldar suffered that much from it, but it would have been nice if they had gotten that second codex. Just something to expand on the lore and the units a little bit more than the Pamphlet Hammer Codex did. But as far as that particular era, that early third era goes, I don't think you'll find many better codexes than the Eldar Codex. The Avatar of Cain, whilst dramatically depowered and probably underpowered for his lore, still is kind of okay. At 80 points, throw him in there. There's no problem with making him into a distraction that can cause some real pain for your enemy if they don't deal with him. It's just a little bit sad when you know where he came from to see this incredible drop in power between editions, but those were those were the days. The Eldar Avatar would continue to re-evolve over the 3rd to 7th edition era, gaining back some of those skills that he had lost in the transition between 2nd and 3rd. For example, the ability to shoot his Wailing Doom as a gun, and with that, the ballistic skill. He lost 10 points of ballistic skill between 2nd and 3rd, which has to be some kind of record. But he would get that back over the years. We're going to end off today by taking a little look at where he ended up. The Avatar of Cain in 8th slash 9th edition. Now, the Eldar are yet to receive their 9th edition codex, so we're going to be looking at their 8th edition codex, and we're going to be drawing a little bit of comparison between that and the Old Hammer avatar. So looking up the avatar of Cain, he is movement 7, which is the fastest that he has ever been. He is weapon skill 2+, and ballistic skill 2+, which don't look as cool as weapon skill 10 and ballistic skill 10, but at least as far as weapon skill goes, is actually an improvement. Ballistic skill 2 plus is now kind of the maximum ballistic skill anyone has, so there's no equivalent to what would be ballistic skill 10. He is strength 6 and toughness 6. What's absolutely incredible about the Avatar is that once they got him to 3rd edition, I think Games Workshop was just happy with his stats for the most part. They played around with his wounds a little bit, but he was always that strength 6, tough 6, and... As the game has grown, and I don't mean grown as in grown in popularity or grown in scope, I mean literally all of the models have gotten bigger. The Avatar has not. We have had two non-Forge World Avatar models from Games Workshop. We had the Rogue Trader era Avatar, who was taller than an Eldar, probably the size of a Primaris Marine from head to toe nowadays so not huge but very big for the era when space marines were actually in like a 25 millimeter scale things weren't as crazy but as the game grew the avatar didn't really grow to, to keep up we got the second edition avatar who is a beautiful model by the way i still love that model 
I have my own that I have to paint up for this second edition Eldar army that I'm working on. But the second ed Eldar model is still the current Eldar model, which is wild. This model has a wife, two kids, and a mortgage at this point. He's so old. And as an aside, I have to say I kind of love the Eldar model range because you can so seamlessly play in second edition and ninth edition with the same models and it doesn't look weird. There's no other faction in the game that you can do that and it doesn't look kind of weird. Maybe Imperial Guard, if you broke out your old Chimeras and Lehman Russes, they really haven't changed much and you could do some retro stuff with them. But really the Eldar have benefited from Games Workshop's negligence if you play multiple editions. So when I make this Eldar army, I'm making it for second edition, I'm making it for third edition, and then I could play modern 40k if, if I ever feel the need to do that. Which, seeing the direction of modern 40k, I probably don't, but it's nice to have that option. The Eldar avatar for Forge World is much, much larger. There was two of them, one of them with a sword, one of them with a spear. Very, very beautiful. But the problem with them is they're almost too big for their stats. You look at them and then you look at the avatar stats and you're just like, oh, well, that's not impressive for a, a big, tall model. The other thing you can do is if you wanted a slightly more modern avatar is take the big statue of Cain from the Dark Elf slash Daughters of Cain Cauldron of Blood model. You can take him and use him as an avatar. And I believe Age of Sigmar now allows you to use him on foot as an avatar. So if you play Age of Sigmar and you play 9th Ed 40k, you could use that one model as an Eldar avatar. My problem with using that as an actual model on the field is he is T-posing so hard and there's no reason for that. He's just arms outstretched in either direction. I'm not a huge fan of that model. I would much rather have the old 2nd Ed avatar of Kane. Glad he is still kicking around. But back to our modern day avatar. We've gone over him. So movement 7, weapon skill 2, ballistic skill 2, strength 6, tough 6. He has 8 wounds. So his wounds got bumped up from 2nd edition's 7 to 8th edition's 8. 5 attacks, leadership 9, and a 3-up save. He has 2 profiles for the Wailing Doom, one for shooting and one for melee. For shooting, range 12. It is assault 1, strength 8, AP minus 4, D6 damage. And it has a special ability where you roll two dice when inflicting damage and discard the lowest result. In melee, it is basically exactly the same. It gives him plus two to his strength, making it strength eight. AP minus four, D6 damage, roll two dice, discard the lowest. It's incredible sometimes when you see that modern day stats mirror second edition stats. And I really do believe that the designers, when they went to design 8th edition and 9th edition now. They looked back at 2nd edition for so much. It's incredible how much was taken directly from 2nd edition and kind of made to work. Both 2nd edition and 8th and 9th are very lethal editions. Everything does multiple damage. 8th and 9th are the spiritual successors to 2nd. Maybe not done the way I would like a successor to 2nd done, but the influence is undeniable. For special abilities, he has Ancient Doom and Battle Focus, which are the two Eldar special abilities in this book. Ancient Doom talks about how they don't like Slanesh and Slanesh demons. Battle Focus is their famous run-and-gun ability. He has Molten Body, 
Roll a d6 whenever the avatar of Cain suffers a wound or a mortal wound on a 5+, that wound is ignored. So, certainly a far cry from his glory days of just shrugging off every darn thing, but, I mean, not terrible. He has Cain Awakened. Friendly Azurani units within 12 of the Avatar of Cain do not take morale tests, and you can reroll failed charge rolls for these. So that is the evolved form of the rule that we saw introduced in 3rd edition, which is a nice buff for nearby Eldar units. I do like the rerolled failed charge rolls. That's kind of fun. He has the Demon special rule, which gives him a 5-up invulnerable save. Now, he does have that 3-up regular save. Now, he's not as in quite... A bad shape as the avatar in third who only had the five up invulnerable but a three up really doesn't get you anywhere in eighth and ninth edition especially with the type of weapons that are going to be armed at him he's usually just looking at that five up invulnerable save i don't mind him in this later era i think there was a limit to what they could do with his stats because he is so physically small as a model they didn't want to make him Probably as good as he should be, honestly, as as strong as he should be. And I don't really know how to feel about that because I do like that old model. I do think he's a lot of fun. But at the same time, if that's what's holding them back, uh, yeah, maybe maybe you could update. Now, the Avatar of Kane is 13 power. His points have changed over the course of 8th and 9th edition. And I don't have the most updated points list, but uh, I believe he was somewhere around 220 points, which feels like a lot for him, to be honest. For someone who is going to eat a lot of fire and maybe die, uh, I don't know if that's something you're going to want to take. But I am no expert on this era. I just wanted to include it because it's an interesting endpoint to see how far the avatar has come all right ladies and gentlemen that is going to do it for this episode just a nice fun little look at the avatar of kane through the eras and his lore what do you think of the avatar i honestly think it's one of the most iconic eldar units i love that it's so integral to their lore their culture just everything about the craft worlds is very entwined with the avatar and i i like that as a unique thing i do think that the eldar are one of the strongest factions in terms of lore in warhammer 40k they've been around since the beginning their lore has always been very good games workshop hasn't messed with it too much and they're still one of the most interesting and enthralling armies that you can pick up and play and for all of you guys out there who are playing the the modern edition of 40k Hopefully they get a nice, strong codex soon and you get to have lots of fun with them. I have heard uh, some some horror stories about playing 8th edition codexes in 9th, so hopefully that doesn't last too, too long. Thanks so much for listening to this episode, and until next time, have a great week. Thanks for listening to The War Games Orchard. If you enjoy the show, why not join us on Patreon? There you'll gain access to all of our bonus content for any level of donation. It's a great way to help us keep going and enjoy extra Orchard content. If Patreon's not your thing, please consider giving us a 5-star review on your podcast platform of choice and sharing this show with friends. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook at The Warhammer Orchard 
and The Wargames Orchard, or by email at wargamesorchard at gmail.com. <laughs>